Welcome back to Snares Book Prep Uncovered, the podcast where we talk with staff, pupils and parents to understand more about life at the school. In each episode, I'm joined by Ralph Dalton, head teacher of the school, and together we speak to a guest, so it's a bit of a three-way conversation. In this episode, we speak to Daisy, Director of Education at No More Marking, a provider of online comparative judgment software for schools. We're going to find out in a moment just what that is. But first of all, Ralph, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you, Simon. It's uh, yes, fantastic day. I'm always excited to do with these with you, Simon. So <laughs> any day with you is a good one. <laughs> You're too kind. You're too kind. Uh, tell me something about Daisy and this company and what the heck comparative judgment software is. Right. Okay. Well, Daisy uh, Daisy Christodoulou is uh, the director um, the director of education at No More Marking. She's been a teacher. She mm-hmm. got involved with the company. She's prolific on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. She loves uh, talking about VAR and uh, DRS in you know football and cricket. She's a West Ham fan. So, but okay. her main sort of she's written three books on education, uh, mm-hmm. and she's a, a real sort of a thought leader in and around okay. education um, right and having her agree to come on our podcast is um yeah it's really really generous of her she the the idea of comparative marking is is as a response to the problem teachers have been facing for years in terms of accurately assessing writing and okay. the way it's traditionally done is you're given um, a mark scheme or a rubric um, to follow and that can lead to certain odd outcomes or outcomes that just don't sit right with you. And you mentioned a rubric. Tell me what a rubric is. So rubric is just it's a, a, a set of rules. Um, okay. So the way it would look like in a school it would be uh, uh, mark, when you're marking the writing, does it have full stops? If it has full stops, it's this level. If it has full stops and capital letters, it's this level. Okay, um, right. A bit like a, a standard framework for marking then. Yes, and that's fine when things are absolute or, you know, it's a binary outcome. But Like in maths, for example. Absolutely. Or, you know, use of full stops. You either use a full stop accurately or you don't. Mm, but okay. when it is the use of a simile, that's open to interpretation. And you can sometimes end up with uh, children shoehorning in learnt, pre-learnt metaphors Hmm. which as a marker you sometimes think I don't know if that's brilliantly poetic or Mm -hmm. utter nonsense and 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 also again we there are lots of our own internal biases as to what good writing looks like and is and we we also suffer with things like the halo effect they call it from handwriting if 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 it's got beautiful handwriting or it's easy Mm -hmm. to read Mm -hmm. it probably gets a better mark than if it's if it's, um, you know, if the handwriting's not so good, even though the content might be better or it might speak to you. So, um, yeah, so I think I think those are the frustrations which, you know, um, No More Marking was was looking to overcoming. Just give the most accurate, give it, give a more accurate way to assess writing. I see. Got it. OK, well, should we bring Daisy in now then? Sounds like a much better idea than listening to me talk about it. (laughs) All right, let's do that. Daisy, thank you for joining us here on the podcast episode. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Very pleased that uh, pupils are back in schools. Uh, Here at No More Marking, where I work, we run lots of assessments for schools. So it's really great pupils are back in schools. We've had a lot of postponements and cancellations in the last year, uh, as a lot of people have. 
and we're looking forward to to this summer term being being an exciting one okay can you just tell us a, in a snapshot um the about the company that you work for and what the connection is with snaresbrook prep school yeah so i work for an organization called no more marking and we provide a different way of assessing children's writing and we work with about 1500 schools in england and abroad and wow. snaresbrook prep okay. is one of them okay um so so yeah that's that's the connection thank you for that daisy um ralph how do you enjoy the experience uh, that that company brings to the school um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited. For me, one of the purposes of school is, is pupils making progress. And to do that, you need to know what they can currently do. And so the more accurate your assessment of what they can currently do, the better you can then work out what the next step is. So finding a really robust way of assessing writing, which is particularly tricky, and I'm not sure has traditionally been done very well, is very exciting and I think the way No More Marking does it does make it very robust and, and so yeah I'm, I'm really excited but I think I don't know Daisy do you want to speak more to actually how assessing primary writing works and um, mm. stuff like that and help our parents understand what's behind it? Sure so I think like Ralph so I'll just give a bit about my background I was a secondary English teacher that was my background and okay. I think uh, as Ralph was saying there's some aspects of assessment uh, traditional assessment that I found quite tricky and that I think also I felt didn't really capture that the progress students were making. I think when I trained as a teacher I had this kind of dream or belief that there was some secret to uh, the accurate marking of essays that the experienced teachers had and uh, when I trained as a teacher I would be inducted into kind of the secret mysteries of how, how to look at an essay and go this is a C grade this is a B grade <laughs> but uh, I, I sort of quickly was disillusioned there, there isn't a sort of secret mystery it, it is all uh, a little bit more um, you know probably a little bit more uh, not quite as, as, as precise as you might hope for <laughs> and not only is that part of the issue that the, the, the traditional marking of things like extended writing is, is not as accurate as you might hope but another issue which I think many people have come across too is that you can often get quite precise quite picky mark schemes that end up distorting teaching and learning and I think often students will notice this and complain about it too that they'll feel like oh I've written a really good essay but because I didn't hit a particular tick box on the mark scheme I can't mm. get a good mark whereas right. somebody else kind of maybe didn't write an essay that was as good but mm -hmm. because they put these key phrases in, uh, mm -hmm. they got the better mark. And I think that's in lots of ways, I think not teaching students necessarily the right message we want to give. Uh, I think we want them to, to feel that learning is about more than just sort of hitting boxes. There's something deeper than that. So those were some of the issues I had with traditional marking and was always kind of looking for, for a better way mm. and came across this approach called comparative judgment which I think addresses both of the issues that I talked about. So it's much more precise, it's much more reliable, much more consistent. When you get two different teachers marking with comparative judgment, they tend to agree. Whereas when you have two different teachers marking with traditional marking, they tend not to. Mm. And it also addresses this issue around the, the tick box mark schemes. Mm -hmm. So it makes it much easier for teachers to reward kind of the genuine quality rather than maybe some superficial surface features. Did you give the example of the you, you know when you get a piece of writing and it really comes alive the, the the writing it's a great piece of writing but for some reason it doesn't meet the descriptor can you think of the example that that would describe this problem where you know the the writing can be great but actually it doesn't meet the mark scheme and you think well if i had to pick yeah. between two pieces yeah. of writing i know who i'd pick as the better writer but it it doesn't you, you there's somewhere i read you had a really good example of it 
We have several examples of this. So we have several <laughs> examples of where traditional marking, you have this, as I say, very precise, quite pedantic mark scheme uh, that actually ends up distorting people's judgments. Hmm. Um, and so one example I often give is uh, the, the current traditional kind of primary writing mark schemes. They'll often talk about things. They'll often talk about fronted adverbials. <laughs> and they'll say, well, a sign of a good piece of writing is it's got a fronted adverbial. And what happens is you get students, and it's not that, fr- I don't think fronted adverbials are a bad thing, I want to make that clear, but you have students who then sort of shoehorn in fronted adverbials that don't make sense. And my favourite example is a sentence that goes, suddenly he crept through the dark. Um, no, no, sorry, sorry, let me get it right. Um, forgettably, he crept through the darkness. And you read it and it's got the fronted adverbial, forgettably. But then you read the whole thing, you go, forgettably, right. he crept through the darkness. Hang on a minute, what does that mean? Doesn't really make sense. <laughs> so, exactly. Mm, so mm. you have students who shoehorn in features without thinking about underlying <laughs> meaning. And But then you might have mm. another student who's written something really good and really gripping, but they haven't used any fronted adverbials. Mm. And so then you're having teachers mm. who are saying, well, I really like the piece that's really gripping and makes sense, but I feel like I can't give that the top mark. Whereas this piece that doesn't make sense, I'm going to give a better mark because it's it's <laughs> it's hitting hitting these, you know, ticking these boxes. So that's one example, but we have lots of examples, things to do with... Um, uh, you know the, the the rubric talking about shifts in formality, mm-hmm. uh, and one of my favourites. Uh, the rubric also encourages you to use hyphens. Okay. So mm-hmm. again, the, the primary writing rubric will talk about the value of hyphens and how to get the top grade. You have to show you can use hyphens, mm-hmm. and then we have stories from teachers who say to their students, uh, "What you need to do every story you write, the main character should be called Mary Jane, uh, and maybe just for good measure, she can be age twenty two <laughs> and work in a okay. playgroup." And then within the first sentence, you've got three hyphens there ready for the marker to see. And and so that's, as I say, one of the the, the problems you have with this uh, traditional approach to marking. And this is one of the things that comparative judgment avoids. It lets you, as I say, look at these deeper, deeper structures rather than some of these surface surface features. Daisy, tell us a bit more about this, because we understand why some marking schemes don't work. But the comparative judgment, what does that do that's different then that actually makes it work very well? So, very good question. So the traditional approach to assessing writing, which is used at primary, secondary, it's used around the world, Hmm. uh, involves looking at one piece of writing at a time and comparing it, looking at the rubric. So you're looking at one piece of writing and you're looking at the rubric, the mark scheme, and you're saying, does this piece of writing meet the standard that's described on the mark scheme? Mm -hmm. So that's the traditional way of assessing writing. And this is a form of assessment that's known as absolute judgment, because absolute judgment is when you look at one thing and you try to place it on an absolute scale. And the problem with this approach is that whether you're in an education assessment or anything else, humans are not very good at absolute judgment. So that's kind of a basic psychological principle. And that's not just true if you're marking essays. It's true if you're trying to make assessments of height, colour, pitch, temperature, a whole range of phenomena. Mm. Humans find comparative judgment much easier. And how comparative judgment works is you have two pieces of writing next to each other. You look at them both and you say, which is the better piece of writing? And you don't just make one decision like that. You make a series of decisions like that. Mm. And then what we do is combine all of those decisions together and use them to come up with a measurement scale for every piece of writing. And so that's much more accurate than traditional marking, than absolute judgment. And I'll just give you a little analogy here. As I say, this isn't just true of assessing essays. It's true of a whole range of phenomena. Think about it in terms of height. Imagine you uh one person walks into the room you're in and and someone says to you how tall is that person that one person Mm -hmm. you can have a go and you might get in the ballpark but i doubt you get it exactly right Mm -hmm. imagine if two people walk into the room you're in and i say who's taller the person on the left or the person on the right Mm -hmm. that's a comparative judgment and that's just much easier you're Mm. pretty much always going to get that right 
So that's the difference between absolute and comparative judgment. And that's the reason why comparative judgment of essays, of writing, of, 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 of educational, open educational tasks is, is more accurate. It just goes with the grain of the way the human mind works. And are those comparisons made between the students, the same students' previous work or between their work and other students' work? So that's a really good question. And you can, in fact, you can set it up either way. So you can set it up such that you are comparing students' work in, say, June Mm -hmm. of one year with the work they completed in September of that same academic year. Um, And we do indeed set up assessments like that. So we are able, therefore, to give you a very good idea of how students have progressed over time. Um, And in some, you know, we've been running for three or four years now. Um, so for the schools who have been working with us for that time, we're able to, to measure the, the progress of their students over that over those timescales. I see. I think I don't know, Daisy, whether you would what you would say in, in relation to this, but I wonder if it's a bit like VAR decisions um, <laughs> in the sense that it's very difficult to absolutely know whether something was a foul. But if we put them all together, we can all very quickly decide which one was a foul and which one wasn't that sort of yeah, I think that's a very good analogy I think that um, decision making in lots of areas uh, you can see parallels between decisions that you make as I said I gave you that example of heights we have a little mm. game on our website that lets you compare colours and I think football decisions decisions that are made in football are just another example of this that often I think the reason referees often struggle with one isolated incident is it's quite hard for them to put it into the context of kind of lots of other decisions. Uh, and that's why you often end up with inconsistencies and people will say, well, how on earth can that be a red card if that wasn't? Or is that a handball and that isn't? Hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, one of the great challenges of, of all decision-making is when you're making them in that absence of context, it, it can be really difficult. What comparative judgment does is let you situate things in a bit a bit more context. So I think if it, there were a way to perhaps judge penalties or red cards using comparative judgment, it would be it would be very effective. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to suggest this as a, I was listening to your, you appeared on a podcast that was uh, to do with VAR and DRS. You, you actually said, you said, I've got a really radical idea. And I thought, oh, this is where, this is where you're going to suggest that we, we use comparative judgment. And I thought, I'm sure we could do this. We could just put it out. We'd have to get rid of, we'd have to find some way of working out the tribal biases of, you know, of, of fans. But I'm sure that would be the best way to do it. We could all just vote. We'd all, we'd all be a much better way. I think you could definitely do it and you could end up with a measurement scale of, of penalties, you know, of, or handball, of that this is absolutely definitely a handball and this definitely isn't and the distribution within that, absolutely. Because I wonder if it speaks, bring it back to education, I, I derailed it, but um, bringing it back to education is the sense that I wonder if the problem we have with VAR is we've forgotten the actual purpose and the purpose of the referee was just to make a decision on whether something was fair, I think, effectively. And... In order to do that, we've come up with a lot of sort of rules or descriptors of, you know, if this happens, then that's often considered a foul. Hmm. And the same with writing. We came up with all these, you know, this rubrics of what what were the features often in good writing, but forgetting actually the principle was just to get a sense of what good writing was. Yeah, I, I just having, I think a bit like you as a teacher, you sort of, mark lots of writing and sometimes feel that it didn't work I was just really excited when yeah this was shown to me yeah I know I think you touched on a really important point there and I, and I think it's the, the the point you're talking about there both in you know, terms of sport and, and writing assessment is to do with tacit knowledge and, and this idea of tacit knowledge is a kind of sort of philosophical concept that there are things out there that we we know mm-hmm. uh, and that are real things but we find very hard to describe in words 
Can you give us an example of that, Daisy? Well, I think a really good example in the past um, couple of years we've seen is really difficult to describe what handball in football is. <laughs> that you try and describe it in words and you've had the handball rules ballooned. It's now kind of 300 words long. <laughs> um, but it doesn't really capture all of the circumstances of you know what really you feel a, a deliberate handball or you know, a meaningful handball is. And it's the same example as I was talking about with the things about the fronted adverbials and the hyphens. Um, that of course you do want students to use this full range of punctuation in their writing and mm-hmm. of course it does matter understanding what an adverbial is and understanding what a hyphen is but somehow just itemising things like that and pulling them out in isolation it, it doesn't really capture everything about good writing and and I, I think there's, there's there's lots of things like that which are, are, are real things that are difficult to describe in words I mean another example people often give about tacit knowledge is trying to describe how to ride a bike in words oh, right <laughs> it's one of those things that you, you know you can do it and it mm. is certainly something you, you, you either can or can't do but it's mm. really hard to describe in words that process mm. of, of of how you you, you ride a bike and, and a mm. lot of the words will often just sort of turn into to waffle they won't really be, be that meaningful um, so I think this is at the heart of of a lot of of, of issues to do with decision making. Mm -hmm. And it can often seem like quite an abstract philosophical concept. But as I would say, with both football and writing assessment, it rapidly becomes can become very important. And particularly when we're trying to feed back to parents and sort of make comments on how well a child is progressing or where they are in their journey. I think it's very important that you have a reliable and rigorous method you know, which you trust. So you can say, yes, no, we, we know we've got a national picture here and we know where this child sits nationally. Again, mm. particularly for a small school like ours, we don't have huge cohorts where we can assume, you know, they reflect the national picture. So that's why, you know, again, it's really exciting. Ralph, just to take it back to Snares Book Prep, I, I imagine that some people might think that this is perfect for schools that are preparing children to sit GCSEs or A-levels, but clearly at Snares Book Prep, being a prep school that's not what you're about so how does this apply to children of that kind of age in your school so the way the way i see it and again i've I've not really i've never had the chance to speak to daisy about it so um it'd be interesting what if if daisy has any thoughts but as she said a lot of the mark schemes so a lot of the typical assess if we were to use an assessment uh tool Mm -hmm. they will be based on these various uh facets like you know fronted adverbials Mm-hmm. Now, we don't teach to those mark schemes. What we try and teach is good writing. We try and teach children to be able to communicate in an appropriate way. Mm. Uh, and, and that will change depending on the circumstance. Because that's what the schools that we ask our children generally go on to, that's mm-hmm. what they're looking for. They are looking for good writers. They are looking for good communicators, mm. be that you know spoken or in writing. So the problem we have is if we use a, a tool an assessment tool that prioritizes the features over mm-hmm. the you know actually is it any good you know mm-hmm. that more sort of nebulous idea mm. it doesn't give us a very accurate assessment mm. and so again we trust our judgment but i think mm-hmm. it's also important that we have a system that parents can trust so when we say mm. that we've done this test and we think this is an accurate snapshot parents can rely on that too so mm-hmm. that's that's how I see it working here. Daisy do you concur with that? Yeah absolutely I think Ralph no Ralph has absolutely um, explained I think the value of it and I think certainly for a lot of independent schools they are I think quite understandably um, not that enamoured of the, the the national writing framework 
They want mm-hmm. to do something that themselves, but obviously they are concerned if they do something themselves, they still want it to be standardised. And if you're a small school, you want to have that understanding of where you fit in nationally. And mm. I think that's a, a difficult problem. And I think it's one that we help to resolve because we can say, well, um, you are getting a national standardisation and a national picture from our assessments, but not mm-hmm. using um, this uh, mark scheme, which I think we all have mm-hmm. frustrations and concerns about. And independent schools, I think, find it useful. I think a lot of state schools who have to use the framework still mm-hmm. don't like it very much. <laughs> and so right. still find it very useful to, to use us. So we have you know, both independent and state schools using us. And that's how we're able to get a very big national picture. And we're mm-hmm. able to do the standardisation. And we can say that the results of the assessments we give, they're based on the writing of, well, over the last couple of years, we've assessed the writing of about half a million a half a million pieces of student writing wow. and we regularly have I think about a sort of um, five to ten thousand teachers who will be taking part in, in those assessments so mm. for anyone in any one school particularly a small school it's quite valuable to be able to say we're, we're part of something much much bigger that's giving us that, that standardized picture. And Daisy how did you get into all of this in the first place this feels like a fairly niche market to be involved in. <laughs> yeah I guess it is um, so as I say my background was as a secondary English teacher I then mm-hmm. worked for a group of schools in London, ARC schools, where I was head of assessment. And this was one of the biggest problems I kept coming up against, this mm. accurate assessment of writing. And that's where I came across actually the founder of No More Marking, Dr. Chris Whedon. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's an assessment expert. He'd formerly worked for a big exam board. Um, so he spent a lot of time in this. And he similarly was kind of frustrated with some of the problems with traditional marking. Mm. Um, and he had set up No More Marking to, to address this issue. Now, the actual idea behind it, comparative judgment, the, the theory behind it is actually not new. It mm-hmm. was developed back in the 1920s by a pioneer in assessment, uh, a man called Louis Thurstone. So he developed a lot of the theory and the equations around it. Um, but what, what our founder, Dr. Chris Whedon, what, what he did was to, if you like, sort of plug, uh, plug a lot of this into a piece of software. Uh, so we're now able to mm. uh, do all these calculations and combine all of these decisions very, very quickly and give people very quick results. So, yeah, that's how, how I got into it and how, how we, we exist. Do you think AI will play a bigger part in the assessment of these scripts? Is there, a, is there ever going to be the opportunity just to feed them all into the machine and <laughs> teach it what we all think? And will it be able to discover that tacit knowledge a bit better than we can? So that's a really interesting question. I actually sort of researched this and wrote about it quite a bit in um, a book I wrote last year, Teachers versus Tech. You know, could artificial intelligence ever take over this role? And there have been a few attempts to use artificial intelligence to mark essays in the past. And the problem they have always come up against is that it's quite easy to game them. So there was a sort of basic form of AI that was used back in the 60s to mark essays. And it was fine as long as the children writing the essays didn't know uh, that, that it was you know, being used to mark. Because once you do, there's, there's ways to game it. And the, the, the simplest way to game it is to just write a lot, even if it's nonsense. So you can game an AI marker by kind of writing the same sentence often, uh, you know, 100, 200 times or the same paragraphs or 40 times. And often That's it just right. isn't picking up on that. Obviously, that, that was back in the 60s. You know, things will evolve and, and get better. And certainly, I think the way AI is progressing, you would never want to rule it out. But I, I do mm. think the most challenging thing with all AI, even current forms of it, is the same with facial recognition, recognition AI, is that when people try to game it and target it, you get really mm-hmm. weird things. So people mm. have realised that changing one pixel uh, in, a, in an image can often t- tweak it going over the boundary as to whether it's recognised as a face or not. And, and I think if you ever did something for essays, uh, I think it would probably lead to 
it wouldn't lead to great uh, great impact in the classroom because again it would go back to a bit what I was talking about before that it would lead the lessons towards how do we game the AI as opposed to thinking about how do we write something that other humans want to read <laughs> um, so I think we want to set up the incentives such that um, we're encouraging students to write things that other humans find interesting and understandable <laughs> and not to be writing things that might or might not fit a particular AI model that we may not particularly understand exactly what it is rewarding so for that reason, I, I think it'll be limited, but absolutely could be wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly, we've been gaming the uh, the human version for ages, teaching children to use uh, Mary Jane. Absolutely. So yeah, no, that's and that's it. And so in a sense, uh, AI is um, you know AI relies on those kinds of AI's. It relies on those kind of often quite statements that you can code quite easily. Mm. And it is true that modern AI is getting better and better at trying to understand some of this tacit knowledge. But as I say, when people try to game it, it, it can often still break down. So I think mm. that's the challenge. I think, again, I, what attracted me to this as a system was actually that fundamental principle about writing things that other people will want to read. Mm. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, you know, give children the skills to be able to communicate. And that and we want to keep that front and centre. And, you know, this assessment system does that. So, mm. yeah. Well, look, Daisy, thank you for coming on to this episode. It's been great talking to you and great hearing all about this. Thanks very much for your time. It's really good. It's great to talk to you both as well. So, Ralph, that was Daisy. What did you think of what she had to say then? Where, where do you start? I mean, first of all, Daisy is so eloquent um, and, and so able to explain both the problems with the traditional methods mm-hmm. um, and the frustrations that that can lead to and the advantages of comparative judgment Mm. Um, so yeah so that that's it's been such such a delight to have her on and I'm just over the moon that she agreed to do it you know she's in quite um, high demand so Mm. um, agreeing to do our humble podcast is um, Mm -hmm. yeah I'm I'm very grateful to her that's very good of her Uh, it's quite refreshing as well to hear someone talking about a problem and a solution that they've got as opposed to just complaining about a problem which is what quite often you hear in life don't you people complaining that this isn't working with this system or in education this isn't working or in the government this isn't working but actually there's a problem and a solution there in one no absolutely I mean I think again it's it's such a I mean it is really difficult and in defense of the marking schemes and the rubrics what I do think they do give you as a teacher are very clear ideas of what a pupil can do to make the next step you know, like I said, we're constantly at school asking ourselves, what can this pupil do to get better? Mm. You know, that zone of proximal development, as I talk about. Mm. And so once you have assessed where a child is and been able to do that accurately, it's then, well, what do they need to do next? So, you know, the writing's OK. Mm-hmm. What would make it better? Well, mm. a fronted adverbial may make it better if used correctly. And mm. so actually it does, what the rubrics do do is highlight well, let's look at fronted adverbials. Do we know how to use them? Have we seen examples of them? Um, where it goes wrong is mm-hmm. when you, you effectively game the writing and you lose mm. sight of the principle, which is to communicate, mm-hmm. and you start focusing on how do I get a better mark? And I think mm-hmm. that's where both the, the, the sort of change of assessment that happened with Michael Gove's tenureship of you know being in charge of education he mm-hmm. sort of scrapped the previous sort of attainment descriptors mm. that existed because children were sort of 
say, you know, you say, well, how, you know, are you a good writer? And they say, well, I'm a level four. Right. And you'd say, right, okay. And what do you need to do to get better? And they go, well, I don't know. Mm. Because they'd lost sight of writing to communicate. Mm. Uh, mm. It, become, it become, became writing to gain a mark. But there is real value in, you know, these, these, these rubrics do really help identify the features that do make good writing. It's, it's mm. um, just making sure we, we use them correctly as well. But, and, I, and I think there's such, again, as, as Daisy highlighted, we do know that the sort of hive mind, if we, there's, there was some study, if, you're, if you've got a jar of marbles, you know the game, mm. how many marbles in the jar and you win mm. a mm. prize if you the person closest. Mm-hmm. When we guess on our own, we we can vary wildly. But if you take the average of all the guesses, mm-hmm. that average will be a lot closer. Um, and I think again, this is what comparative judgment does because you, you know you, actually the process as you do it is the two pieces of writing come up on the screen, and you read them and you go which one's better and you do that over and over again and sometimes the same piece of writing pops up but it's compared mm-hmm. against a different one okay. and what you're effectively doing is you're sorting it into a spectrum Right. but not only am I doing that not only are the members of staff at school doing that but all the, you know, all the teachers that take part in this across the UK are doing that mm. and that gives you a really accurate idea of where they sit in this spectrum mm. and then it's a lot easier to judge where the you know if you group parts of the spectrum together mm-hmm. it's easier to say you know where they sit and with mm. more accuracy so mm. that's um that that's really good and i think the other thing it's done for us as a school and we're hoping it will continue to do is actually help us have that conversation as teachers so we are constantly thinking right at year 7 they need these types of skills mm-hmm. So at year six, they need these types of skills. What do they need at year five, four, all the way through to lower foundation stage? And actually, by doing this comparative judgment, we do it as a whole school body. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's involved. So all of us are getting an understanding of what good writing looks like at Mm -hmm. all the age levels, which means Mm -hmm. when we're in our year three class, we've got a mind as to what it might look in year six and we mm. know where they need mm. to go to so again it keeps that next step in mind yeah. um, and helps um, you know children keep making progress because uh, one of the things that makes the biggest difference to school uh, to children's progress is school efficacy so you know are we all pulling in the same direction mm. year on year you know month on month day mm. in day out mm. uh, and that's again uh, the, the way we use the judgment that's helping us do that too so it's um yeah, ticking a lot of boxes to, to keep mm. things moving forward here. Mm. Mm. Well, look, it was great talking to Daisy. It's been great talking to you. I think we probably need to bring this episode to a close. But for anyone listening, if they want to find out more or if anyone's got any follow-up questions from anything they've heard on this episode, then feel free to just to get in touch with the school. You can just, probably the easiest way, just go onto Google, search Snares Book Prep and uh, go to the school details there and then give the school a call. And I'm sure Ralph will be happy to help. I'd be delighted. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Well, let's bring this episode to a close. And thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Ralph, do you want to say goodbye as well? Oh, bye for now. (laughs) Bye for now. Bye bye.